I kept telling myself, oh, it's my first year. It's hard for everybody. It's going to get better. It has to feel better next semester or next month once I get past this project. But I do remember feeling like the kind of stress and anxiety that I was experiencing every single day, starting in the fall um, when I first started, was just not healthy. So that's something I began to recognize right away. I didn't necessarily doubt the program or my willingness to stay in it until probably um, after the holiday season, probably when I came back for the spring. But I think, yeah, part of it was just me telling myself it's going to get better. It's hard for everybody. Um, and I tell myself to power through because that's, that's what I've always done my whole life. Um, I've never quit anything before. This is like the very first time I've I've ever walked away from anything early or not seen something through until the very end. So I had that kind of pressure in the back of my mind too. Like, you're not a quitter. You cannot have these thoughts at all. Um, so I was kind of almost shaming myself for having, having those doubts pretty early on. Hi there, welcome to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, and as a PhD student, I chat with peers hoping to learn from their academic journeys. Estimates of students who do not complete their PhD project are as high as 50% in various countries. Of course, this varies between countries, universities, and fields of research, but we can assume that there are many out there who started a PhD program and left academia without the doctor's title. Yet, this is something that is not often talked about and that we actually haven't talked about yet. So in this episode of our podcast, we would like to focus on this topic. We hope to find out what the reasons could be for deciding to leave academia, all the things that you might want to consider if you are thinking about it, and what lies ahead after having made such a decision. Before I introduce you to Cameron Gooden, who will tell us more about her transition away from being a PhD student, I would like to invite you to check out our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. We'd also love to hear about what you think about the episodes, and we'd like to ask you to rate us. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe. So, like I said, today our guest is Cameron Gooden. Cameron completed her BA in political science with a minor in philosophy and Spanish at the University of San Diego, within three years instead of four. She then took a year off to contemplate what to do next, and in the meantime Cameron worked as a substitute teacher in California. During that time, which was right before the pandemic hit, Cameron decided to enroll in a PhD program at Brandeis University, on the other side of the country, and she moved to Boston. Her research focus was on gender-based violence, but her first year as a PhD student was completely online due to COVID-19. At first, Cameron decided to take leave from the program for the summer, which she then prolonged to a full year, and eventually she realized that she didn't want to go back to the program at all. Today, we will be talking about how she got to that decision, how that is not the end of the world, and how we can talk about having these feelings and considerations during your PhD program. So welcome, Cameron. I'm truly appreciative of your openness to talk about your academic journey and how you moved away from it. 
I don't think it's an easy thing to do, as there's still a stigma on it. But I also think that it's important to talk about, yeah, because you're really not the only one who went through this. And I hope that our listeners will find it very helpful uh, to deal with their own insecurities about this. How are you doing today? Hi, thank you so much. That introduction was lovely. Um, much, much more than I anticipated and deserve, probably. Um, but thank you for having me. I, I appreciate you both wanting me to be on this podcast. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. I don't think this is something that is discussed often. I didn't really, you know hear of anybody else doing this before me. I know it, it happens a lot, um, but I didn't really have anybody to watch do something like this, so it was a very scary transition. Um, but to answer your question, I'm doing well today. Um, I, I'm still in Boston. I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm working a new job, which I'm sure we'll get into, but yeah, things are mm-hmm. much different now and much better for me. Um, than things were about a year ago today. So I'm doing, I'm doing quite well. <laughs> Great. It's wonderful to hear that at the end of the story where we're going to head towards, uh, is a good one. Yes. That you're doing well. Yes, definitely. So, uh, we'll see how you did that. <laughs> um, but I think it would be nice to have some drinks while we're at it. Yes. I'm having my regular amaretto. What are you having? I am drinking a peppermint tea. I've already had coffee this morning, um, so I wanted to try to limit the caffeine for the afternoon. But most importantly, I'm drinking it out of a mug from the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf, which is kind of an homage to my hometown in California. Um, it's a California-based okay. company, so um, just a little tribute. It's my favorite coffee shop, um, and I've definitely been missing it dearly while I'm in Boston. Um, so shout out to the coffee bean. I'm sure all the West Coast people listening <laughs> know what I'm talking about. All right. So it's a little bit of California in Boston with you. Here. Yes, both. <laughs> Great. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> all right. Now that we have that, that minty sounds really good. <laughs> I'd like to start with a few short questions. And the first one has become a bit standard, but I'm still curious. So what does your morning routine look like? Right now, um, I wake up pretty early because I have a new dog. Um, She just turned one, so she's not super puppyish anymore. Um, But she's a shepherd dog, so she needs a lot of exercise. So I take her on a nice long walk in the morning. Um, That's before I even start my day. Um, start getting ready for work. So we go out and do that. And it's nice to just be outside first thing in the morning. I've learned um, it's just an important part of my morning um, to kind of feel the earth and get a feel for the day first thing. Um, so it's become a really nice start. And shortly after that, I just... like you had a long walk today yeah. because I see her sleeping in the background. Yes, <laughs> she is here. She's, she's very sleepy. But yes, yeah, so that's typically how I start um, the very beginning of the day. And then I usually just start getting ready for work. I have kind of a long commute to work. So I have to be out of the house within about an hour or so. So yeah, I basically just get ready for work and head out the door. Um, Not much of a routine in the morning, except for the dog walking, but I think that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a very healthy routine too. Definitely. It's not too rainy outside. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And then what do you like better 
about Boston than about San Diego. Oh my gosh. I've never been asked that before. Well, San Diego's great weather-wise. I will say that. I do miss the sun quite often in Boston. Um, but I would say, I mean, the public transportation here and just my access to the city um, is much better than anything I've experienced in a larger city before. Um, and just the history is pretty incomparable. Um, I just love the history of Boston. Um, obviously, I grew up as an academic and being interested in history and, you know, um, doing a lot of those types of things. So it's nice to be in an area that has a lot of history, especially since I come from California, which is pretty much the newest of the new. <laughs> We don't have as much, you know, deeply rooted history there. So yeah, I enjoy that. I enjoy um, being close enough to the city, but I also live in a very beautiful suburb that has a lot of nature and parks. And that's something I really have been appreciating. And of course, the seasons. I didn't grow up experiencing fall or even winter. Um, so it's beautiful to see the colors changing in the fall. And even now as spring is starting to come, the flowers are blooming. And it's just a new appreciation um, with the changing of the seasons that I didn't really have. Um, so it's kind of nice to experience it with new eyes as an adult. <laughs> so that's something I really come to love about the East Coast and Boston specifically. All right. Yeah, it's not to say that one is better than the other. We won't tell anyone. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But there's pros and cons to every place, right? Of course, right? of course. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, another question is, what do you not miss at all about academia? Oh, wow. I think above all, the pressure. I just think so much, so much of what my decision was based in to leave and so much of Um, the tension and pain that I was dealing with was founded in just this immense pressure that I don't think I could even describe in words. Um, it's, it's the pressure to produce at a pace and at a rate that's just humanly impossible paired with this perfectionism um, and the need to do things perfectly, um, which is definitely... Um, just one of my personality traits in general, but I think academia definitely feeds into this idea that we constantly need to be producing um, and at our best at all times. And it's just not, it's just not feasible and it's not sustainable. So I think the pressure that led to the kind of chronic stress and anxiety that I was experiencing mm -hmm. is definitely what I, what I am very happy to not be experiencing anymore. Um, I think that's probably the number one thing I, I don't miss at all. <laughs> the pressure. Yes. I totally understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is something we talk about with a lot of guests. And everyone has their own ways of dealing with it. But what everyone does say is that it is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Right? At some point, you just can't keep exactly. doing that and feeling that pressure and being perfect. Mm -hmm. So now that we have the short questions, I'm interested in uh, your academic journey and how it started. So we start at the beginning. <laughs> you completed a BA in only three years instead of four, which is quite perfect. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. And then you took a gap year, right, to think about the next step. So at what point in time did you think, okay, I'm going to pursue a PhD? Well, I think I I always knew that that was my end goal. Um, I definitely grew up in a family 
where education was very valued. Um, we placed a high, high value on education and academics and scholarship. Um, and my dad in particular, um, that was kind of like our thing growing up. We just had a shared passion for it. So I think I always knew in the back of my mind, I would be doing some kind of higher degree. Um, at one point I wanted to go to law school. Um, and then ultimately I decided, um, to do a PhD because while I was in my undergrad, I fell in love with political theory and, It was kind of the perfect marriage of everything that I loved. It was, you know, contemporary politics and U.S. politics, um, as well as international, paired with the kind of philosophy and bigger questions that I always have loved. Um, I've always just kind of had that kind of mind, the philosophic type of thinking. So it was kind of the perfect answer for me. Um, and I wasn't really looking for it. I started out as actually a biochemistry major in college for the first okay. semester. Very quickly found out that was not, <laughs> that was not what I was meant to be doing. Um, so I found obviously political science and in that political theory. So I knew I wanted to do something with that. And I also have always had a passion for teaching. I, I really thought, um, and wanted to be the types of people that always formed my own thinking growing up. I just remember being so impacted and so shaped by the words and the language and the way that teachers would, you know, portray information. Um, and I just wanted to be that for other people. Um, and I, I thought it was the perfect, you know, the perfect answer to pursue a PhD because I would get to do the research that I loved and still get to go on all of these endeavors with particular passions that were important to me while also getting teaching experience and seeing if that was actually something that I wanted to pursue. Um, so I think, you know, in that year, I, I knew I wanted to apply to grad school and the PhD decision was kind of just the perfect answer to that. Um, that would lead me to my okay. ultimate goals. Um, Yeah, so I think that's just kind of where my thinking led me. Right, and did you apply to multiple programs or was the one in Brandeis University the one for you at the time? I did apply to several programs. I applied to a few master's programs and PhD programs um, and I got into a few of both. It was a mixed bag um, of PhD acceptances okay. and master's acceptances. But yes, I, I ended up choosing Brandeis because of the faculty there. I... They had a very strong political theory department and program and professors whose work that I had read, um, who I really wanted to work with. Um, so that was something that I was really interested in, in doing. I really enjoyed my visit with them. They were very personable and friendly and they still are. I really did enjoy working with all of them. And again, I just, I love the Boston area. It's nice to be on the East Coast. I think part of me was looking for something different and I kind of wanted some newness in my life. I didn't know that that would be coming with a global pandemic. <laughs> um, so I got a lot of newness at once. But yeah, I, I definitely think I made the right decision in Brandeis. I don't regret um, choosing this for my PhD. Um, yeah, so I think it was just... It was a lot of factors and it was a huge decision, but I definitely think I made the right one. Right. A lot of new things, like you said. Yes. And um, the move from California to Boston mm -hmm. was something that you chose. And uh, you knew it was going to be different. 
but it was something you thought you would be able to cope with. Um, but once you got there, everything closed down. Yes. Right. And you weren't able to get the full experience, um, of, you know, what most PhD students get. I think now things are starting to open up mm -hmm. a new generation again. Yes. Who knows what a PhD <laughs> experience could be like outside of a pandemic. So once you were in Boston and the program started and then everything was in lockdown, what went through your mind? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it was very difficult because not only had I moved away from my entire life and family um, and all of my friends back home, um, but I also didn't really have the opportunity to make new ones or really plant new seeds here. So I think it was the fact that I was feeling lonely, just missing people that I had in my life and who were geographically proximate um, for several years of my life. But it was more so that I didn't get the community and the in-person communication. And I don't think I recognized, I mean, I think on a large scale, I don't think many people really knew how much we need human interaction mm -hmm. and how much just like glancing at one another in a classroom matters to the experience. Um, so it was so much of that, just kind of the longing for the experience and everything that I loved about academia being completely lost um, because that is what I love about it. I love being on a campus and being with peers and being in the same space with brilliant people and hearing ideas being shared and having them occur in the same room. So not having that and just having to kind of try to forge connections via Zoom and over text um, with people I hadn't met um, was kind of difficult. And I think very quickly I realized, even though I am introverted on basically every scale, <laughs> I very much need that. Um, I'm not a person who can just sit in my bedroom or in my office all day and do this kind of work, especially when it's heavy work and it's emotionally taxing. So I think, you know, it was really difficult. I obviously am very grateful now that things have improved enough where I've been able to at least expand my horizons here. And I've been able to experience mm -hmm. new things and travel a little bit and go new places and meet people. Um, but that was something I was missing for the whole of last year, essentially. Right. Yeah. I think what you're saying about the total isolation is something that people have really underestimated uh, and that some people might have experienced during the pandemic, but in your case, quite extreme because Like you said, your family and friends were really far away. Definitely, yes. So, yeah, with lockdowns and, and uh, air travel being stopped, things like that, it, you must have even felt further away. Definitely. Um, mm -hmm. Than when that would be, have been possible. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you're just trapped in this place, even though you've made choices to get you into these places. Um, so it's a very right. kind of complicated feeling that I think a lot of people have grappled with throughout the pandemic, just feeling like I, I chose this and I chose to be here, but I also feel so stuck. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just kind of binding in that way. Very double feeling. Yes. Yeah. And you also mentioned uh, that what didn't help was that your topic was quite, uh, yeah, it could hit you quite emotionally because I've already mentioned that you were working on gender-based violence. Yes. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit more what your PhD research was about that you were doing before? Sure. Um, 
again, so I only, I did only spend one year in the program, so I hadn't secured um, a definitive dissertation topic or anything like that. Um, but I did have a few interests I was working with. So my first pretty much entire full year, um, my work was centered on gender-based violence and sexual violence. Um, I did a few papers in American political development, just about how underreporting um, impacts, you know, these fields as well, um, and how we have a responsibility as academics to address these issues and in compassionate and also action-based ways. So that was kind of what I was working on, um, as well as on the theory side. I did a lot of work with the racial and feminist theory. Um, so that was that was also heavy as well. Um, it was kind of a perfect, <laughs> the perfect storm of everything. They were all things that I care deeply about, but I think there's a cost that people, this is something I don't think people talk about either. There's you know, a certain cost and a price you pay when you set your whole life on a path and you care so much about what you're researching because you want to get it so right. So I think that's something that I was kind of caught up in as well. I just cared so much and I was so passionate that I almost like couldn't get out of it at the end of the day. Um, everything started kind of conflating and it was really hard, you know, when you're in that world where you're studying you know, horrible things and you're reading reports and you're reading accounts of stories and then have no one to talk about. Yes. It. Yes. And it's right? all kind of heartbreaking. And, you know, I feel like the nature of at least American politics right now is pretty bleak. It's a lot of hopelessness and it's a lot of kind of desperate yearning for better, but evidence of that better is few and far between. So I think that was part of it too. I just, felt like living in this world where I was having to read so much destruction and harm and about all these pains, um, it, it became kind of difficult to separate myself because my work became my life, as I think it does for so many of us. So yeah, it was difficult. And again, like you mentioned, having nobody to talk to about it. Besides the people, you know, that I had met, I did have great cohort friends. And that was all all wonderful. And I did have faculty support as well. I do want to say that like it was it was great. But again, not being in person and being away from so much. It did it did have more of a wear on me than I, I knew in the moment. Right. Sometimes it's also something you don't realize that is happening to you. Yes. When you're so deeply into it. Definitely. Right. Um, and I did actually want to ask if you have any support uh, from the faculty or from supervisors or peers. And you said that they actually did have this supportive environment for you. Yes, definitely. Um, I did feel supported and I did feel rooted for. I, I felt like my work was valued and that I was, you know, an important member of the university. And I did have faculty reach out to me and check in. And I shared a few things with um, a few professors in particular who really helped guide me through my first year and were really helpful and insightful um, and also just great human beings and were very understanding. Um, so I did have the support. Um, but I think part of it, you know, I think I definitely have a history of kind of um, keeping things to myself and just telling myself I can get through it and that it will get better um, and that I only need to push a little bit more and then I'll, you know, be on the next thing and everything will be okay. 
Um, So I think part of it was kind of a self-isolating period of my life where I just didn't feel like I needed or wanted to share because I had this fear of being perceived as weak or like I couldn't handle it. Another woman in academia yes. who's still invested in a topic. Yes, I've yes. I've heard that before as well. Definitely. Um, so I definitely, I was feeling all of that. Um, so while the support was there, I wasn't necessarily in a place where I felt ready to kind of put that, that demerit on my record um, of, oh, you know, she's stressed out or she can't handle this. Um, she wasn't ready to come here. All of which probably aren't true. They're just probably me projecting other people's perceptions. But that is a concern. Um, I do think, especially for women in academia, coming off as anything but, you know, these perfect, strong, um, independent, capable people is really threatening. So I think that was definitely part of my my isolation, my hesitation as well. Right. In a way, while we're talking about women um, in academia, in a way there's also a bit of a stereotype on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a strong, independent woman who can do everything. She can keep the household, she can be married, she can Mm -hmm. have kids, she can do the PhD, and she can do tenor track and do publications and a million (laughs) other things, and she's not emotional at all. She can get through everything. Exactly. But... Often topics can be very emotional. I'm studying migration Mm. and um, I've also read a lot of things that are not very pleasant. Mm. Um, I come from peace and conflict studies, international relations uh, that are also not always happy stories. (laughs) And I don't think it necessarily has to be one or another, like a woman without emotions, which is often not considered feminine at all. Yes, There's also an issue in that, right? Like the whole perception we have of what a woman in, woman in academia should be like. Yeah, so of course I understand that you've struggled also with that image. Like how do other people, how will other people perceive yes. me if I tell them that I'm struggling with this, mm-hmm. right? Yes, I think there's definitely, um, yeah, that vision that we have ingrained into our minds of the unwavering stoicism that academia requires Um, And that women need to be, if you're going to be career oriented in the world, or if you have a dream you want to pursue, you need to be this stoic, unmoving person who, you know, whose strength comes in the traditional ways of just kind of moving through and pushing through. But I, I mean, if there's anything that I've learned over the past few years, it's that strength comes in a variety of ways and it can look a million different ways for everybody. Um, and I do think there's a kind of beauty and strength in emotionality and in vulnerability. And I think that's something that's severely, you know, just underrepresented and not talked about, um, specifically in these kind of academic spheres. No one, no one tells you that it's actually valuable to be a person with empathetic capacities. Um, if you're working in the social sciences, maybe it's a good thing that you care Mm -hmm. about people, um, I think, yeah, that's something that you never hear about, um, that it's actually valuable to feel things deeply and to be moved by things and by people and what people write and art. Um, So I think that's something I've learned to appreciate about myself. And, you know, over time, I found alternative ways to kind of channel that. And I think more generative things and ways than in this sphere that, you know, kind of shames people who um 
express those kind of emotions or aren't the type of people who can just go into a room with full confidence all the time and just push through, you know, I think, I think that's something I've definitely learned. Great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You mentioned earlier that at the time you were doing the PhD, um, you didn't really think that maybe you were invested too much in your topic and being isolated too much. And that that's also why maybe you didn't ask for any help at the time because you didn't realize what was going on. Right. So at what point during the PhD did you start feeling like this isn't right or maybe it's not the right timing? And when did you start doubting um, doing a PhD? Um, I will say I think the doubt set in pretty early on. (laughs) Um, In hindsight, I think my first semester was very hard. Um, I think everybody's first semester in a PhD is hard. Um, and that's kind of the complication that I ran into was I kept telling myself, oh, it's my first year. It's hard for everybody. It's going to get better. It has to feel better next semester or next month once I get past this project. But I do remember feeling like the kind of stress and anxiety that I was experiencing every single day, starting in the fall um, when I first started, was just not healthy. So that's something I began to recognize right away. I didn't necessarily doubt the program or my willingness to stay in it until probably um, after the holiday season, probably when I came back for the spring. But I think, yeah, part of it was just me telling myself it's going to get better. It's hard for everybody, which is something I do constantly. Um, I just kind of disregard, yeah, any, any kind of hard struggles or any kind of thing that I'm feeling that might be a little bit negative. Um, and I tell myself to power through because that's, that's what I've always done my whole life. Um, I've never quit anything before. This is like the very first time I've, I've ever walked away from anything early or not seen something through until the very end. So I had that kind of pressure in the back of my mind too. Like, you're not a quitter. You cannot have these thoughts at all. Um, so I was kind of almost shaming myself for having having those doubts pretty early on because I do know that I am passionate about this and I still am. And the things that I was studying do mean a lot to me and I knew I wanted to be doing it. Um, but like you mentioned, I think what started to set in was the timing of it all. Um, so it became less of a question of, is this meant for me? Am I actually passionate about this? And more, is this the right time for me to be pursuing this um, in my life? Um, So I think once I kind of reframed it that way, I was able to kind of step back and realize I'm struggling so much and I am not in a healthy place at all. And I, I definitely need to take some time to reset. I, you know, when you when you're in this headspace though, I I do remember thinking like, I think I've lost passion for all of this. I don't think, I don't think I even care anymore, but with time and space away, I have realized I do. Um, it wasn't that. Um, so that's been a nice, a nice thing to kind of come back to. Um, I've been able to kind of refine my love for the things that I am passionate about in new ways. Um, and I, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I eventually will go back to a program or to do another kind of degree, but I definitely think it was the timing just with the pandemic, 
my own life. Um, I had a lot of, you know, like personal struggles I was going through and it just wasn't right for me at the time. And I think that's okay. And I have had to have a lot of, yeah, I've had a lot of, um, you know, conversations and I've had to really, you know, be okay and come to be okay with the fact that I made this decision and it was the best for me at the time. Um, yeah. So you were actually really tough on yourself because you realized very early on that maybe you were not in the right place in the right time. Yes. Which is something we also talked a lot about in other episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, often people do say it just happened because it was the right place in the right time. And for you, what I hear is that it was obviously not. Mm -hmm. And that also happens. But despite having that feeling already in the very early stages of the program, you pushed and you pushed and you pushed yourself and you didn't allow yourself to even think about quitting. Yes. And then still, I mean, somehow your brain had to cope with all of the emotions and the negativity and the isolation. So it started reframing it, right? Not thinking about quitting, but maybe taking a break, which is what you did at first, right? Yes. What emotions did you feel when you told your supervisor, I'm going to take a break? Oh, um, a lot of shame. I feel like I went through a whole cycle, like the whole life cycle of emotions in that time. It was a lot of shame and guilt because again, I just grew up kind of believing that I could get through anything and that I could push through and that challenges were challenges, but soon I would overcome them. Um, so that was always my mindset. And I never even considered leaving or taking a break from something or giving myself rest really. Um, which is another thing that academia doesn't allow, allow for. So it was a lot of shame just from, from myself. It was self-imposed. It was nothing that anybody ever said to me. I received a lot of support. Yes. What was the response of the faculty, the supervisor, peers? Um, it was really wonderful. It was more supportive than I expected. Um, it was great to hear, like, we appreciate you telling us and, you know, a lot of just keep us updated on how you're doing. Obviously, like at that point, I had intended on returning. So it was a lot of like, we look forward to, you know, you coming back eventually and seeing what you end up doing. And it wasn't until later that I eventually decided that I would not be returning. Um, but in the beginning, I did receive a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, and just kind of hoping that I would take the time to rest and recharge and do what I needed to do to come back and be the version of myself that I, I wished I could employ in academia um, and throughout this first year of the program. So was there anyone who maybe thought, oh, you're saying now you're taking a break, but I don't see you coming back at that point? I don't think so. At least, I mean, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what everybody thought, but I did make it clear that I was taking this time to just, you know, heal. I had a lot of things to tend to. My health was kind of in a bad place and I wanted to make sure mm. that I was on a better track. But I, I didn't intend to just, you know, never come back. And I made that very clear from the beginning. So I don't think anybody had had that perspective. Um, I never um, communicated that to anybody or no one ever asked or insinuated that I wouldn't be returning, which was also kind of validating. Um, this kind of belief that I you know, they wanted me there and they, they wanted me to be a part of the community and to 
make the contributions that I, that I also had in mind and for myself. I was wondering about how you felt. Of course, you said that you, you felt ashamed and that was actually mostly self-imposed because no one else yes. had shamed you. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but how did you feel about the time of that whole year that you had soldiered through so hard um, that you had already put into the PhD? Did you also have thoughts about having invested too much to quit? And how do you look back at that now? Definitely. Um, that's something I really struggled with. That's kind of what held up my decision for so long. Just the idea that I had spent so many hours, um, not only in this program, but my whole life had led up to me being here. Um, I had worked so hard throughout high school and college to even make it into this program. So how could I be in a position now where I'm willing to let it go? Um, so that's what brought on a lot of the guilt as well. And that's kind of how I was convincing myself to stay for so long because I just was telling myself, you have worked too hard to be here. And I think it was also partly, I felt like I was representing more than myself. And I think this is the case for a lot of women and a lot of minority women as well. Um, in particular, it just, the decision felt so much larger than myself. I felt like I had a bigger responsibility to kind of use my capacities to, you know, produce something brilliant and to pave pave the way for other academics who might look like me or who are interested in these kind of topics that aren't talked about either. And I think that's kind of the pressure a lot of us put on ourselves too. Um, so that was part of it. And I felt like I was, I'm the first one in my family to have even considered pursuing a PhD. So it was a lot of, am I letting people down in my family or in my department? Um, am I letting myself down because I've worked so hard? But ultimately, you know, obviously I came to the conclusion to leave and I, I've come to find that that decision was just me choosing myself and my own well-being, essentially, um, over all of these roles that I have incurred throughout my life. Right. How did you move um, in your own mind, right, with all the emotions that you also imposed on yourself? How did you move from telling yourself, I'm on a break, to I'm going to leave the program? Oh. And how much time <laughs> did that take? Um, it took a long time. It took me a long time to even take a break. Um, it took me months to decide to take a health leave of absence. That was the first huge decision I made. I thought that was big. Um, so I really thought that was going to be the end. And I and I would be coming back and I would be better and everything would be great. Um, so I thought once I made that decision that things would lighten um, and I would be, you know, f feel more at ease. But it didn't go away. My my um, chronic stress that I was experiencing and anxiety and all of this pain that I was carrying was manifesting in ways that I didn't have a good handle on. Um, so I think ultimately I kind of just had this moment um, over the summer where I was enjoying life and I was with my family and friends and I just had this blip where I envisioned my life and what it would be like if I didn't go back and if I had just gotten a job and what that would look like and if I had time to do things that I enjoyed 
um, and to communicate with people that I loved and to like forge relationships and build on projects that I love. What would that look like? And I think that is kind of what started getting me to think about long-term if I wanted to return and if I didn't, what would that mean for my life? And that was a really scary thought to have initially because, you know, at that point I was on a health leave. I I was planning on returning, but I knew, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I would be feeling the same way. Um, I would be studying the same things. I would be forcing myself to just get through every day. Um, and the pain wouldn't go away. Um, it's just this kind of like lasting ache that I was feeling. Um, and it just didn't feel right. So I knew in the back of my mind that if I returned to this environment and this thing that was causing me so much distress, the distress wouldn't go away. It doesn't, it wouldn't heal on its own. You know, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's home. (laughs) So I think that that's kind of what entered my mind. And I I began to think about if I left, what would I do? Because I spent my whole life thinking this was my path and I didn't even give myself an opportunity to explore what else life could look like or what else I'm passionate about. So it was really kind of scary um, to think about dropping everything that my life had been leading up to. And this program was was that. It was It was my dream and it was my passion and it was what I thought was going to be my life. So coming to the choice and the crossroads where I kind of saw a different life and it could be better, but you're never really sure. Um, it could have also been worse. I could have made the, the worst decision of my life leaving the program, but I wouldn't know until I did it. Um, I wouldn't know right. that like there wasn't as much longing and chronic stress and just essentially pain on the other side unless I made that decision. So yeah, I mean, looking back, I'm definitely very proud of that choice that I made because I think that was the first time in my life that I really chose something for myself that I I knew deep down would be good for me, even if it meant letting people down or even if it meant, you know, falling short of dreams I once had for myself or not being the person who I thought I would be. I think that that's one of the best decisions I've made in my life. And I think like more broadly now, I, I'm beginning to understand that just because a, a decision feels really hard doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of where, I, where I've come to be now. I think you should be very proud of Thank choosing you. also for yourself, which in a lot of cases is also very important. Um, in that way, I kind of like comparing it to the, the security videos that we see in airplanes, yes. right? Where we're always told that first you have to put on your own oxygen mask. Yes. And then you put it on that of a child next to you. Yes. Because if you don't make it, then what is the child going to do, right? Exactly. Sometimes you really need to place yourself first, be healthy, be comfortable, be who you want to be before you're able to help anyone else or produce anything for the world that others could then benefit from. Um, so I think you definitely make the right choice, even though it seems often very unnatural mm-hmm. because it's also built into human beings to trying to help yes. other people first um, who are not capable of doing that for themselves first, for example. Definitely. And I think so much too, I mean, I think there's there's a certain type of person who is an academic and I think a lot of us 
you know, have all of these goals and we're very goal oriented driven people. Um, and I think there's this kind of stigma that if you let go of a goal or if you modify it, um, or decide you've changed your mind, it's kind of viewed as a negative thing. But I, I don't know. I think in the past year I've realized it's okay for you to change your mind and, 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 you know, it's okay if you realize that your goals and your dreams are changing as you are, you know, we're corrigible changing human beings and all we can ask of life is that we change with it um, and we're able to evolve. So I think, you know, that's part of it too. Like we need to be able to address our goals and tell ourselves it's okay if they've, if they have changed or if we have changed and we now want to change direction or pivot or um, embark on a new a new topic or a new project. So I think that's that's definitely something important too. I completely agree. All right. So then December came, last December, and then you tweeted the following. I submitted my official withdrawal from my PhD program today. I intended to wait until the dust settled before trying to put words to the feelings I'm experiencing, but some things just cannot wait. I have so much to say and I'm not sure where to start. I suppose I'll begin here. And then a quite long thread followed, <laughs> which is very interesting to read. Um, this was then retweeted 215 times and liked over 3,000 times. Wow, <laughs> people really needed to hear that. What were the responses that you got to that tweet? And how did you react to that? I mean, I, I never... <laughs> I don't, I don't think I ever anticipated anybody reading that thread. Um, I think I, I kind of tweeted that as a way, it was kind of me closing the chapter and it was a form of closure for myself. And I never expected it to reach other people or to mean anything to them because it was about my experience and my journey. But so many people reached out to me and responded just first, like thanking me for sharing and being honest. Um, a lot of people were sharing their own stories with me, which is always such a meaningful exchange. Um, I really love, I mean, I feel like sharing stories is why we're here. Um, I feel like that's why we're all here on this planet. But it was such a warm gift to receive um, such a nice and kind response from people. Um, and people telling me that it's okay and that I, they think I made the right decision and that putting myself first, kind of reinforcing and validating my decision and telling me that it was okay and that my work will always be there. But if I wasn't okay, then what, what good is my work? Um, so I think it was very nice to hear that and it was great to see, especially other academics, um, and people that I even worked with or that, were mentors to me kind of responding and saying, this was the best decision and I'm proud of you. Yeah. I can't really, I can't really explain how much that meant. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely never expected anybody to see that. And the fact that so many people did is a little bit terrifying. <laughs> but again, the response has been so great and I've appreciated all the kindness that has poured out and, a lot of people have even reached out to me saying, you have helped me make the same decision for myself. And now I'm, you know, deciding to take a leave or taking a break and finally valuing rest. And that too is just an indescribable joy. <laughs> just, it's, it's great. So that was a good decision to 
uh, write a tweet like that that might have been a little bit of a rant but not even that more of just getting it off your chest yeah like you said. <laughs> definitely all right and you also said that for you it was a little bit of a uh, wrapping it all up right mm-hmm. so when it was all wrapped up in december what happens after your official withdrawal what did you do next what are you doing now so i well by the time i wrote that tweet um and i officially withdrew I had already been on the hunt for jobs. Um, I was actually starting that process kind of throughout the summer. Um, and I ended up starting a job in late August. So while I was on leave, um, I was kind of, you know, grappling with, do I go back? Do I get a job? So that's kind of when this whole process started. But now I am working at a law school here in Boston. So I'm still I'm still in academia in some capacity. I'm keeping my foot in the door. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's great to be a part of higher ed um, kind of on a, on a different side now. It's really, it's kind of interesting to be on the admission side and to see how it all works on, on the other end of things because I've only ever been an applicant um, and a student. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I really do enjoy being in the university and I enjoy the setting. I enjoy working with students and faculty and I love higher ed in that way. Um, so it's great that I still have the opportunity to engage um, in that way. And I'm glad I, I kind of, you know, transitioned away from being an active researcher into still, you know, being a part of academia in some way in higher ed, but just in a very, very different role. Um, but I'm loving it. I definitely am really appreciating this job and what it's given me. And ahead, again, I don't, I'm not sure what the future holds. I don't know if I will be returning to a program eventually. Um, again, like I mentioned, I I feel like time away has given me a chance to come back to a place where I'm rediscovering passions that I thought were lost because I was just so worn down and jaded and just not not in a great place mentally. So I don't know what the next few years will hold or if I ever plan on returning. Um, I don't for the next foreseeable maybe two years, um, maybe longer, but I don't know. I'm not opposed to changing my mind again one day. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm definitely trying to keep my options open and keep my mind open as well. I don't hate academia. I'm not a person who never wants to go back. I'm completely turning my back on it. Again, it just, it was not the right right place for me or the right time and I I thought it was and that's okay but now I'm in a much happier healthier position so who knows what will change or what will come but I'm very happy working my job right now (laughs) right so you don't have a set goal for the future yet a new goal like you said Um, because maybe now you're also open to those things changing and maybe not having a long-term plan at least not yet. Yes, definitely. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, I think other things have become important in life to me in the recent years. And I think I'm learning that that's okay. It's okay that I'm not the the girl growing up that I used to be thinking I was just going to get a job and I was going to work so hard and I didn't care about anything else. And it's okay that other things have become important to me. And I I value joy and spending time with the people that I love Um, and building relationships and kind of creating a life that I enjoy and that I that I love that looks different from what it used to but again that's okay 
All right. After everything that we've talked about, what would you still like to say to our listeners who might be facing similar struggles as where you were about a year ago uh, and about making the decision to leave a PhD program? Um, I think above all, I want to tell people that it's not the end of the world, um, that you are not your work. And as hard as it seems to extract yourself from the life that you're living and the work that you're doing, you can do it. Um, that was something that really held me back because I was often questioning if I leave, what else can I do? Who am I without, without this? Um, I think a lot of us spend our whole lives, you know, diving into this research and caring so much about these issues and these topics and pouring our whole selves into them that we become, we become our work. Um, so I think I would just say that it's important to recognize that you are not your work. You are you and you can have the kind of life that you dream of. You can, you can, you're in charge of your own life. You have the autonomy and the agency to make decisions that will be better for you, um, and for your future self. Um, and just because something feels really, really difficult or a choice feels like it's really heavy and it's going to change everything and everything will be horrible and the whole world will crash down. It won't. I thought that too. <laughs> yeah. So I think I just, I, I would implore people and want to empower them to kind of honor themselves. And I think we all have this internal knowing of what we need to do and what is best for us. And I think if we just listen to that, life is more beautiful on the other side once we give ourselves the chance to be heard and we make these choices. And then I think the other thing I just, I'm still telling myself today, but it's not giving up if you're giving yourself a chance. You know, I, again, I feel like I put a lot of shame on myself because I thought I was a quitter. And in some ways, like, yes, I did walk away from something that I, I said I would do and that I had set on my whole life, but I knew that it was not meant for me. Um, and I think choosing to give myself that choice and a chance in that has changed my life. So I think, you know, don't get bogged down in thinking you're making the wrong decision because it's really, really difficult. Um, because life life always changes and you change too. And maybe also, if I may add, that it's not necessarily quitting your life goal, but it's making space for different goals. Definitely. Right? Yes, absolutely. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I would like to ask you just one more question, and this should be an easy one. Okay. <laughs> How do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh, wow. Well, first, again, I come home and I walk my dog because <laughs> that is now my whole life's work. <laughs> no, but I do I do like to come home and just go on a nice long walk. Um, I've also been enjoying yoga recently. Um, I'm getting into yoga and Pilates, so that's been a nice change of pace. So definitely some kind of movement after work I think is nice when I'm sitting for a long time. And then cooking dinner. I like to play music while I cook. That's just something... <laughs> like I like to do. Um, I have music for every occasion. Um, it's kind of like an ongoing joke between my friends and I, like I need to be listening to music at all times of the day. So okay. I like to do that while I cook. And then I have dinner and usually watch a movie or a TV show that I like. Um, I have a few comfort shows like <laughs> um, 
you know, that I really like to watch that just kind of ease the mind and <laughs> always take me back to a place of good-natured joy. So that's usually what I do after a rough day and after, you know, a good day too. <laughs> right, just to close it well, at least. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cameron. I'm glad that you shared your story with us. And I also want to say thank you to our listeners for listening again. We would love to hear from you. So don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform and connect with us on social media with the handle at what to do with that. Your dog has been wonderfully quiet and sweet in the background. <laughs> What's her name? Her name is Birdie. Birdie yes. for a dog. Birdie for a dog, yes. <laughs> did she come with you from California or did you get her in Boston? I got her in Boston. Um, she was one of the first um, ways that I was trying to cope with the entire last year. I figured if I get a puppy, I'll be distracted. It'll be a nice way <laughs> to get outside and to try to meet people here. Um, yeah, and she's been great i i mean she's great <laughs> i love her i bet it did give you distraction definitely oh yes a lot of work but a lot of joy 